Brace. Uh. <laughs> what's if up? you okay, let's okay. Let's revisit a character that we mentioned a long time ago, which is Bizarro Brace. Uh-huh. Okay, Bizarro Brace. Don't remember this one, but yeah. It's okay, I do, but it's okay. So Bizarro Brace is a like alternate version of you. Okay. Now, Bizarro Brace is not punk. No. No, that shit. Bizarro it's... Brace is mm-hmm. into indie rock. That's right, baby. Uh <laughs> me and my girlfriend Mindy. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Mindy, Mindy, my girl, her name is Mindy Rock. She's Norwegian. Uh, well, I met her at the sweater store about seven years ago. And, uh, you know, this was right after, you know, I mean, Young Chomsky, you, you remember this. You and I started that business together where we made the fake uh, mustache things that you could put on. Mm, yeah. Before uh-huh. they invented filters. People yeah, used yeah. to do that for Instagram. For old timey photo booths. Well, our suspenders and fake mustache business just went belly up because we both simultaneously me too each other. Kind of as a joke with the press releases, I guess it's hard to read that in those. And uh, I met Mindy and she told me that she loved um, pavement. Mm. And I was like, damn, damn, this hoe, this hoe digs a curb, huh? Like I didn't know that oh when she was God. talking about music or anything like that. And then I then she told me, No, I love pavement because its singer has two sets of teeth. <laughs> we started hooking up. And then I don't know, I started Vice. Everything's basically been pretty good after that. Wait, but I was going to ask Bizarro Brace. What? Mm. <laughs> no, that is not the indie. That's not hey. the indie rock sound. Hey, hey. <laughs> what? Because uh, Bizarro Brace is obviously still a musician. Of course. What's Bizarro Brace's indie rock band name? Uh, 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 oh, uh, hold on, hold on. No, I got it. I got it. I got it. Milky Eyeglass. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was going to well, say- Wait, no. <laughs> Milky Spectacles. Milky Spectacles. <laughs> What's yours, YZ? Uh, the Soft Fellas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Liz, what's your indie rock band? Um, mine is Lucy and the Yarn Darners. Yes. Yes. Another good one, Liz, another good one you could do if you're a girl is just name it after any like kind of thing, like haircut or like blow dryer. You oh, yeah. That, or towel. Mm-hmm. Uh, towel is good. Towel's really good. Yeah, yes. I feel like you can do uh, animal plus like food item. You could be like mm-hmm. uh, zebra mm. jelly. And yeah, be, yeah, 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 yeah. Or something like that. Uh, a quick thing, if you guys ever want to, if we ever want to do a punk band, you can just add dis in front of any word and you're good. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I play like kind of D-beat indie sort of stuff. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's like soft grind a little bit. <laughs> It's like, uh, it's got a lot of loots. Hello, plastics. everyone. <laughs> I'm Liz. My- <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm, I'm, the, I'm the shock to son of a bitch from pavement. 
Oh um, and we have with us here. Well, he can say his own damn name today. This is Young Chomsky. Who's actually, you know what? You're not producing this. I'm out. I am producing this. it. Be, no, I've Albini been using is. the left hemisphere of my brain to produce and the right to uh, speak on this episode. So oh, I'm like, mm-hmm. that's called multitasking. Yeah. Uh, ambidextrous. Can, this can guy you use one of those hemispheres to uh, tell your body to put its shirt back on. <laughs> no, that's, that's the only way I can do it. Me. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome. It's True Nun. We're back. We uh-huh. are back. We had a little hiatus. Yes. Um, but that hiatus is now over, and we are back. Mm-hmm. Don't know the where adoption went that. through, and we own a baby now. <laughs> In about 18 years, this investment will mature, and we'll have a free intern that people won't get mad at us, not for pain. Oh my uh, we are they're inheriting the family business. Duh. Exactly. Yes. And also you don't have to pay your kids. That's why Mormons have a bunch of kids because that's, they can just have them work on the damn dairy farm. Uh, we got a little different episode for y'all, y'all, y'all today, y'all folks <laughs> y'all. today, <laughs> y'all folks out there today. Oh my God. We, we've gone soft. We're saying y'all now. No, I'm saying that in a cowboy way. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Original now, boy. now I'm saying it. Now I'm saying y'all folks out there today. We have a different episode. We're going, uh, we're doing a little, this is an advertorial. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of, you know, they yeah. used to, some, some people started calling that those magalogs. What? Yeah. So, okay. I'll, this is a little secret. Hit me with it. There was advertorials, which would be like a one sheet, but then companies developed magalogs, which would be like magis, magazines, that were catalogs. Perhaps you remember Abercrombie and Fitch. Mm-hmm. The you know the huge. I've got a collection actually at home of the the huge uh, Aber, the early Abercrombie, you know, magazines. Yeah, the original Magalog. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was some really cool. They were doing some cool. There was some cool stuff there. But anyway, that's the it's a story for another time. Yeah, I well, I just told it, so it was for that this time. Vintage yeah. Abercrombies. That's what I'm into. Yeah, I used to write for this magazine called Vice. Actually, you know what? No, Bizarro Brace writes for Nice Magazine. No. Yeah, but it's actually mean. (laughs) Anyways, we have with us today our venerable, he's 85 years old. I don't know why I called you venerable. I had to justify it somehow. uh, Producer, Young Chomsky. He's damn here on the hot mic. He's been saying all kinds of crazy shit that I've told our real producer, Steve Albini, to cut out. Because we have a new little mini series. I've been, you know, I, if you notice that I haven't been calling it a mini series, I've been just calling it a series. Yeah. That's because it is. It is just a series. But also, it's a little too indie rock to call it mini. If it's mm-hmm. like, oh, it's just like so twee and tiny. It's Here's like our a little small series. small series. It's so mm-hmm. small bean series. So before we get into this damn interview, uh, hit us with hit us with the facts, facts man. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, it's called Keep the Dream Alive, and uh, well, I guess the full fullest name is True and On presents Keep the yes. Dream Alive with John Vanderslice. So that's that's who else we're going to be speaking to in a moment, and uh, you can hear it starting next week, uh, February second, two two twenty two, where all True and On podcasts mm. are sold. Again, two two twenty two, the tweest date in the calendar. So we're we're dropping two episodes like a couple of like a couple of actually I feel like comparing them to the atomic bombings that really yeah, that's, were a horrible thing to have done. Horrible thing. is yeah. not a good what are that's, two good things? Like a wedding between uh 
two people. Two that birds. doesn't make any sense either. Two birds. But it's like two birds getting married. We're putting out two episodes the first week, and then like they're 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 little birdling children, <laughs> one dropping each week after that, uh, for the next Aww. 96 weeks. Uh, just playing. <laughs> for three weeks after that. It's a, it's a five episode limited series. Um, and uh so we have with us today young Chomsky, who has been just roid raging out this entire time. Hopefully Albini yeah. cuts most of this, but he has been just flexing his, I can see your nerve endings. It's all fucked up. Uh, and with uh venerable, why do I keep saying venerable? None of, <laughs> neither of you guys know. are venerable. I don't know no, why John's I'm saying venerable. this. John's ta- I, but that's like a rude thing to say about somebody. I feel like. I think he's Is it rude. It's oh, always getting no, venerated. It's like respected. I feel like that's something that comes like at the end though. Yeah. It's like a lifetime achievement award. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Soon yeah. to like not soon to be, but someday venerated. Yes. Well, he's yeah. ve- no, let's be clear. He's venerated, but he's not venerable. I feel okay. like there's a distinction there. Yeah. Um he's, he's not vener- yet venerable. He's not yet venerable, but he but is will venerated. Be once he's, you know, once his once his damn out. series comes out. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I am going to fucking turn on the damn telecaster here play an A sharp uh, and uh, let's let's start let's I can't it's been a week and a half oh my god come on roll the let's roll the damn tape testing testing one two three alright got the test results back and you are all uh it looks like mentally ill and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, guys. How you guys doing? Good. Excited to be here. Me too. All right. Liz, are you excited to be here? Uh, yes, I am. But I was going to say, wait a second. Let's intro the voices that the listeners at home just heard. Who do we have here? We have Young Chomsky for the first time in a long time on yeah. mic. This is exciting. Long-time listener. I love the production <laughs> on this podcast. It's one of my favorites. And John, John Vanderslice, what's up? Hey, how, how, how is everyone doing today? <laughs> Fantastic. Um, let, me, let me first ask you guys something here. This is something I've asked every music-type person, I think, since I began my career in music back in 72 when I was uh, touring with the Eagles. How's the sustain right now? <laughs> I mean, it's if you're on like a digital wavetable synth, it's infinite. So it's great. That's oh, a good fully. answer. Totally understand. Totally understand that. So listeners might be like, well, how, what's going on here? There's, there's a couple guys on the podcast. And we have uh, Young Chomsky here and John Vanderslice to talk about a little upcoming series that uh, Truanon it did, is putting out. It's a Truanon thing. John Vanderslice is a thing. And it's called Keep the Dream Alive, doing the worst introduction in human history. Keep the Dream Alive. And uh, you know what? Let's do the most basic question that I could possibly ask you guys. What is this thing? Yeah, I mean, uh, so Keep the Dream Alive. So that the name comes from uh, a song that, that John wrote a long time ago. And John, of course, uh, I think needs no introduction. But for those of you who aren't, aren't hip to it yet, John is a musician and record producer and studio owner, a recording studio owner. 
and he had a recording studio in San Francisco called Tiny Telephone, which was very famous, renowned among certain uh, circles, uh, indie rock circles primarily. Um, so a lot of records that I know and love and have been listening to for a long time were recorded at Tiny Telephone, uh, probably some that many listeners are familiar with, including John's records, um, records by bands like Death Cab for Cutie, The Mountain Goats, The Magnetic Fields, um, and these are all things that w- that we talk about in the podcast. So it's basically a history of John uh, and also of this studio, uh, which started in 1997. That's when it was founded and uh, kind of started from very humble beginnings, grew to become this really cult destination, really sought after place where it was booked, uh, you know, like every day of the year. And then finally was kind of clinging on for a long time in the uh, an inhospitable environment of San Francisco where rent is insanely expensive, as many of us know, and the city went through a lot of changes, uh, better and often worse. And uh, finally, the studio shut down in 2020. So we kind of start off the podcast with that. The studio is is closed. And then we travel back through time and we look at the beginning and in the middle, and then we we catch back up and and see what the future holds. So that's my high level. Um, introduction to to keep the that was, alive. That was great. Thanks. How did you guys link up on this project? I think we linked up. Weren't you visiting me, YC Young Chomsky? <laughs> it's really hard for me not to call you by your name. Call me when you want. Call me when you need. Call me by your name. I'll be on the way. Like. <laughs> That's uh, all right. You can you can call Mordecai once the uh, <laughs> once the recording's over. <laughs> well, it's funny. I guess the way I would tell it is I've, you know, like I alluded to a minute ago, I've been listening to John's music for a long time, like 15 years. I'm sorry, and I didn't so, catch that part. Could you repeat that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I got into to John's music along with the music of a lot of these other bands that are part of this time and place um, in the mid 2000s. And I, you know, have been taking a trip down memory lane for myself uh, in the process of making this. And I think the first time I saw John play live was like 2006. And I have some old photos of of John performing in all over the uh, the years. And in 2013, I have a, a photo that I'll, I'll post at some point. I visited Tiny Telephone in San Francisco in 2014. So this is stuff that I've been into for a while. But I think we first kind of collaborated officially um, summer of 2020 when we were doing those True and On Twitch streams. Uh, and if you didn't catch those, I was interviewing different musicians on on the Twitch channel and doing these little synth kind of tutorials. And I would perform and I would invite people to perform. And so I reached out to people who I admired and hoped would come on the on the show. And some of them didn't reply and they're dead to me now and I'll never listen to their mm-hmm. records again. And then <laughs> Ian Stewart. Yeah. Others did. And uh, John was one of those. So we did one of those Twitch streams and it was super fun. And then I guess after, shortly after that, John, you reached out and you sent me something you'd recorded, uh, a podcast that you'd recorded for your Patreon. And it was kind of processing and kind of talking through shutting down the studio. Cause that was a, right around the time that was happening. Yeah. And I remember I, I found the email that I sent to you. It was in June 2020. So that's when this project was kind of first conceived. But I said, I think you, you've got something here. This is a really compelling story, but I know there's like more to it. And I think this needs kind of a long form 
explanation because there's a great arc here. And I was, I said, do you want to work on this together? And that's when we started, we started scheming. Yeah. And I, I was all in, it made total sense to me. And I think that one of the, the, the first like kind of ideas that we talked about was that like running an arts business is like, it's like uh easy bake oven style capitalism. Do you know what I mean? It's like completely fake and, and wouldn't really stand up to like a real market. I mean, you're, mm. Or you're competing with like, first off, it's like you're mostly competing with trust funders and psychotic people. It's not, yes. doesn't like yes. really attract normal people. Like the, the profit margins are so razor thin and the overhead is so like punishing that you have to have, for me, the only real reason that I could dig my feet in for, I mean, you know, I'm still running studios now. It's like, you know, it's been a long time, but like without me actually making my own records in those studios i think it just doesn't simply doesn't make sense uh unless you've got an axe to grind with god or you have some just real trauma that you're <laughs> expressing through like this uh, business <laughs> experience but i think that we kind of like wanted to see it through the lens of like ca capitalism you know it's like w i was forced to like run this business through the marketplace and the market of san francisco where i'm paying you know like I'm competing with tech companies for Class C real estate, which is f fucking crazy if you think about mm -hmm. think about it. And so that was really the beginning of where it felt like, oh, this this actually would be interesting. Well, wait, where was Tiny Telephone? It was right by. It was like by right by where the farm was, right? It it was yeah. in the farm. Actually, it was in the same. And my landlord was the the and the, really the only reason that Tiny Telephone existed is that my landlord was the good family who not only produced Tiger King, but also ran the farm and our like longtime art support supporter weirdo landlords. Like, I mean, they allowed total anarchy. I mean, they allowed Flipper to play, you yeah. know, like, you know, shows that, that were crazy, the fucking crazy shows, you know, and like, mm. you know, they allowed survival research laboratories, which was my neighbor, an yes. anarchist collective that, you know, bought a, decommissioned v1 rocket from west germany and turned it into a flamethrower it's like spewing so much heat that one day we were recording deerhoof was recording in the control room and we felt the control room which was maybe 50 yards away from the front door we felt the control room heat up and i was Jesus like Christ. i was like turn down the, the monitors we turn it down and we hear this rumbling we go outside and as we're walking towards the door it's just like feels like this solar kind of like flare <laughs> we open the door and there's the v1 rocket you know like spitting out crazy flames i mean this is, this is a crazy so they allowed this stuff down there yeah we should go back and say okay so you because that is a totally different time than anything that could happen in san francisco now <laughs> like yeah that is not um like that is not familiar anyone who's been to san francisco in the last 10 years i would yeah. say mm -hmm. that would that's like unheard of like maybe they'd be like oh i could imagine something like that happening but that just that it's not possible anymore in that city and i think that you know the the kind of you know the arc of your of your recording studio of tiny telephone just follows so much of kind of and is shaped by the changes that uh happen to the you know to the fabric of the city in that same time um, so when you opened it, what year was it? Or we can even go back even further. When did you move to San Francisco? I, I moved to San Francisco in 1989, where yeah. San Francisco was the coolest, weirdest, you know, active, you know, 
like gayest and, mm-hmm. and most uh, interesting city in the U.S. There were actual communist bookstores where people were, you know, like in, you know, buying books. And there were, you know, there was the naked group of men in, in the Castro that were just oh, yeah. outdoor living. Okay, li- those you know, guys are naked. still there. <laughs> <laughs> no, they passed the, the city council. I think they passed a resolution saying that it was illegal to do that. No. Yes, but it was they, they, the wording of the resolution was such. I was actually just explaining it to someone the other day. Oh, I love That this. they this had to good. wear something over their <laughs> penis. And so uh, that something became. Was that the for, sock? Like Anthony Kiedis style? For some, it was the sock, but for many, they just accessorized and put on a cock ring. Oh, that's oh my good. god! Which that's solid. Counted. That's yeah. solid. And a decent troll. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, yeah. so eighty nine, eighty nine. You moved there. I'm, I moved there in eighty nine, and I was I was a food worker for my entire life. So I, I started working in restaurants when I was fifteen. Part of the reason why I moved to San Francisco is that I knew that I could get work in restaurants. Like, like I knew that because I'd been working in, in service for so long that I could like deal with the, I mean, I, I was dating someone who lived there. So that was really the the draw, but, mm. um, but I could stay there because I started work basically I started working in, in like Fisherman's Wharf, uh, tourist places that were serving fro- frozen crab and soft Joe's, serve ice cream. Did you work at Aliotos. Joe's Crab Shack? Aliotos. <laughs> no, no, close. Acebella's, <laughs> which is like oh. really close, like two doors yep. down from Aliotos, right? So yeah. I worked at... But I wasn't on the floor. I wasn't good enough to be on the floor. I was in the catering department where mm-hmm. you would work on like, basically it was like Japanese tours would come in and they would, Rocky, the um, kind of the crew chief would, you would be sitting down, you know, waiting for something to r- r- happen and he'd run and he'd be like, 134, 21 A's. And you'd be like, okay, that's frozen crab. It's like barely reheated <laughs> canned clam chowder, like a quarter slice of like melon with some seeds still like st- stuck to yeah, this yeah, yeah, gooey yeah, mass yeah. and like, and some iceberg, you know, like salad. Mm. And so I, I worked there. I, um, played in really bad bands, one of which was called The Id, another one was called Cylinder, and then another one was called MK Ultra, which some people claim to have liked, but we could draw about like six people to those shows, so I don't <laughs> mm-hmm. believe them. Um, and so one day I'm looking in the in the San Francisco Chronicle, and there was a listing for a, like a warehouse space, and it was $660 for 2,000 square feet. Fantastic. So me and nine other friends rented it (laughs) (laughs) as a, and it was like, yeah, 10 way. I remember the 10 way split. I remember getting that $66 check from people was like a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyone who shared a practice space in the last, uh, even even to this day, it's difficult to get a $60 check from people sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I started. So I started renting from the Good Family in 1992. Tiny Telephone, it took so long to open because it was, you know, a rehearsal space for us. And then we kind of like slowly transitioned into a studio that the studio opened in 1997. And so you are, you are basically, I mean, here's the thing. You're an analog guy, right? And to explain, we like to hear on Truanon. Uh, usually tell our guests to like say things in basically the most like explanatory talking to a baby manner possible. Not, dear listeners, not because we think you're stupid, but because everybody but but you is stupid, <laughs> and so we have to explain it to them and not you. But you know, in 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 recording, there are di- a couple different kind of schools of recording, I guess, and there is digital recording and analog recording, and tiny telephone famously is an analog place. And that kind of is important to this story. So tell us about that. 
Well, I I mean it's it's like full full disclosure. I I have been totally radicalized in the past couple of years because I started taking a, a lot of MDMA and I think it <laughs> it started like changing the the oh, way my ears Lord. what my ears wanted to hear. You know what oh, I mean? Like no. so I know, I know. <laughs> You've been to my parties, you know. You know what, yeah, true. What, Fair enough. <laughs> and so I, I think I started wanting to hear like more like glitchy kind of digital stuff. So I, I now record in my small studio in in my backyard, which you've seen, and Liz, you've seen. Mm-hmm. I am like one hundred percent like digital now, but I was radicalized to 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 become like an analog studio for two reasons. One, I was working at Shea Panisse when I when I first opened Tiny Telephone and, and Alice Waters really pushed me in a weird, odd way to go all in on like a, you know, flying an extreme flag. She basically said, mm. you have to fly a flag. And, you know, I was an analog person then. Digital recording was really, really bad then. Like terrible. Like people were yeah. selling tape decks which I was buying for nothing and then buying ADATs and then putting a gun in their mouth and then like creating like a Jackson Pollock <laughs> like painting. Ironically, a very wall. analog way to go out. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so I just got in this loop where I was buying discarded, you know, these machines were, they were 128 grand for like a Studer 827 when they like came off the line and studios were selling them to me for two grand because they were all in on digital you know it's like they were just like clamoring Mm. to like you know cook their dinner in a microwave which to me was what the the, the qualitative like equivalent was so digital's gotten better analog though was perfected over 70 years good analog decks still sound so fucking good like yeah and they are we we chatted about this today like they are human they like you, you this is a linear format it is much more like um it it is much more knowable to us as as like humans existing in space and and like going through time if time is linear which i'm not quite sure anymore but um so yeah like we we wanted to provide the peak experience of what recording could be and no one else was doing it they were all too my assessment then at that moment was that they, they were too lazy our whole podcast actually was recorded straight to two-inch tape, which is why uh, <laughs> it's, it was really hard to edit. It's, it's taken me a long time with the razor blade to uh, to piece this together. But also, I, I wanted to just point out too. You know, I, I've had a lot of time to think about this podcast and like what it is and what it's about and and how I see it. But we talk a lot about recording and a lot about music. But I feel strongly that like this is not a podcast for gearheads only. Like we don't talk that much. I mean, if you know what a compressor does and you know what an EQ does, you'll probably get a little bit more out of it. Um, but uh, yeah, to me, it's much more of of, a, of an emotional story, a human story um, that just happens to be about uh, a recording studio. Well, listen, I mean, we're all gearheads here, right? <laughs> I mean, if these people could see the kind of the kind of stuff that we're working with here, Liz practically looks like a cyborg. She's had yeah. some stuff implanted into her. I'm an analog cyborg. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Liz is recording into a 1961 uh, Neumann <laughs> microphone, and uh, what kind of compressor? John, the really great kind. <laughs> yeah. 1176. Yeah, she's got an 1176. She's arc it up. To any to any listeners who are like, what the fuck are these guys talking about? I don't know what the fuck these guys are talking about. Eleven seventy six. You guys sound like a day in the damn Star Wars or something. I will say, <laughs> my buddy Mikey Young used to work at a fucking. I think he still might work at a pressing plant in um, 
in Australia, a, a, like a, you know, a record pressing plant. And uh, he actually recorded records there straight to I think acetate. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I, there, they, I have one. It's fucking incredible uh, yeah. that he recorded with. And you know Kelly Stoltz. Yeah, I, I love Kelly. Yeah. Uh, that uh, he recorded with Kelly there. That's just uh, incredible. Um, but that is slightly off topic here. So, all right, you start this record studio up. You're like, I'm going to be the fucking, I'm going to be the tape king. I'm going to make Richard Nixon look like shit. It was how many <laughs> fucking tapes I'm going to record here. Um, did you know a bunch of, I mean, you're playing music. You know, it's the 1990s when I kind of, you know, uh, indie rock is sort of like becoming its into its own as a genre, I guess, late 90s. Um how did he get hooked up with a bunch of these bands that uh, that recorded there? So I think that like the history of the studio also kind of parallels my own like like record making. So I, the whole cycle was was um, it depended on both elements, right? So I needed to go on tour. So I would often go on tour, and then the band that I was w- with would mm-hmm. just kind of through me wearing them down or exposure to records that were done at the studio or my records, they would eventually come in and record. So there was like, there was this almost thing, this route where, and at the time, I mean, I really from like probably 2001 to 2014, I was touring at least six months a year, if not more. And so I would go out on a record cycle. And then in some ways you're kind of like, it was always me and Tiny Telephone was like grouped together. So yeah. I was like this kind of like just reminder that this place existed. And San Francisco for a while was, you know, it was a weird art haven where everyone had friends and people, yeah. we let anyone crash in the studio. You know, if we had like, sometimes we'd have like another space in, because I was the the property manager down at the farm. So if we had like a place that was unrented, I would just allow bands to like set up camp in these like warehouses that were open and they'd mm. just bring sleeping bags and pads and crash and then come into the studio record and then go back. We had tons of bands um, bring vans and just sleep in the vans in front of the studio. So it was a very like, like pro art, like let's just make weird records and we'll, uh, we were under market the entire time. This was incredibly appealing to the circuit that I was like running on. Yeah, there's something to be said for for the under market thing. So by that you mean that you charged way cheaper rates than basically anybody equivalent, right? Yeah. Once so there's this this recording magazine called Tape Op, and they used to have this conference, and I went to the the first Tape Op conference ever, and I was like a speaker at the conference and at the time i had like made it very public in interviews that a recording studio had to have published rates on their front page and like bold font Mm -hmm. and that the idea of them like sliding rates was unethical and I, i i really was like clear that i i felt like you need to have rates so low that you're sold out and that, that, like, that's how you're going to survive, you know, that you're going to be working 365 days a year. And that's how bands can come in and, like, afford, like, that's how you know where your rate is, like, at the at the right spot. And so what studios would always say to me is that, no, we want to have, like, like, sliding rates. So if someone doesn't have money, they get a cheaper rate. And if they're on a label, 
they get a higher rate. Well, this is complete fucking fantasy because for 25 years, I've been getting hammered by managers and labels and bands that have leverage. The winners are the ones who are confident enough or, or they have like people who all they do is just brutalize other people about their, their, about money, you know? And so, and bands that are poor, actually, they don't feel like it's their space to be pushing you on the rate. So anyways, I was booed at this conference because I was like insisting, (laughs) right? And when I think back to, and it was like, at the time, I, I knew I was right. And I was just like, bring it on, man. <laughs> Let those booze pour over me. And I, I was like adamant that it was like to have like a hidden, you know, what's called a card rate, right? So like your published rate and then every what you're really charging is, is like unknowable, right? To me, it's so anti-democratic. And so the, the, the studio was really based on this, this like completely transparent rate that was unbelievably low, but through sheer volume, we made it work. So who are we talking, we should say, who are we talking about here? Like when you first started, what, like what, um, like who are some of the bands that maybe some people you know, might be familiar with that you start bringing in in the early days, and from where, like from there, where does it kind of go? I mean, and the some of the key first bands were Death Cab for Cutie, who were huge. I mean, they did transatlanticism there. They were there for over a month, and like that for us was was like massive because they talked about it every you know, every show that they did. And then they would Mm. play at the Fillmore when they came in town. And then they would Mm -hmm. talk about me and the studio from stage. So this, this kind of stuff, you know, we never placed an an ad anywhere. You know, we never bothered to have, you know, we know it's all word of mouth, right? It's like, you can't, it doesn't matter if people like know who you are, if they don't care about you. So, um, Deerhoof was really big. Mountain Goats were really big. These are people that, that are, Career, you know, I knew at that point they were careerists. I knew that they were going to be around forever and that they're singular artists. They're completely weird people that are involved in a lot of stuff. And, you know, it wasn't just Death Cab, it was Chris Walla from Death Cab as a producer would bring in tons of records, you know? So, like, we, we had this, like, kind of like system outside of bands coming in. There were a lot of producers that were fans of the studio that would come in. And they would bring bands that I did not know or didn't um, have any connection with. And then all of a sudden, we're getting phone calls from of Montreal for a month or Islands for a month. And it was, I knew that the heat was on at a point where I was like turning down like serious shit. I mean, we've turned down way more stuff than we ever got. You know, like Frank Ocean's manager would like pressure, pressure us for days. And we were like... Like philosophically, we would never, we've never bumped a session, which is also like, that's pretty rare in studio world. We've never bumped a session for anybody um, because it's gross. And so we lost a lot of bookings. There was one person that tried to book where I was like, seriously, I'm going to bump someone. And that was Kevin Durant when he was on the Warriors. He wanted to do. Sorry, hold. (laughs) Why did he want, what did he want to record? He wanted to throw down some verses. And oh I was like, I, I will fucking engineer that shit. I mean, I will, <laughs> I will 
I'm going to make this relationship happen. I'm going to like. He is definitely the most indie rock basketball superstar, by the way. And he's a soft boy. Oh yeah, Wait, total. Couldn't, you, couldn't you just tell a band like you guys? Is Kevin Durant wants to come? <laughs> come on, <laughs> please. It, uh, he can because I feel like if you can kick another band's ass, you should be able to get their studio time. Yeah, I like agree. if Kevin Durant yeah. could beat up whatever the lead singer yeah. of whatever band was in there. Um, yeah, I think he should be able to get the studio time. Also, he should get a portion of the record sales, and this yeah, goes for I, everybody. I Yep. He should get points on the record. Absolutely. A hundred percent. So one thing about making this podcast that was enjoyable to me was there, it's made of a lot of different interviews, many, I think 18 in total different interviews. And the format mm-hmm. is pretty different from True Anon, just in terms of how, uh, how it was made and how it it sounds, I think, um, and all, all kind of cut together, maybe a little bit more like a, a documentary film. But one of the fun things was talking to these different people all separately, but hearing them say the same things or similar things or talk about the same things without having heard the other ones. And one of the thing, and, and they say a lot of similar things, or there's a lot of themes in, in the way people talk about John. And one is that he could have made a lot more money with this studio than he did. And I think it was it was Ben Gibbard where he's like, uh, yeah, that makes John either a very dumb person or just like an incredibly generous and and giving person. And you know, he favors the latter interpretation. And so do I. I. I'm really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, it was funny. I mean, that comes up a lot. And the other thing was, I I swear, almost everyone I feel like said something about cult leader or John seems like he could start a cult or there was a cult vibe. Um, so. Yeah, I'm gonna have to do some kind of like super cut where I put all those together of like 18 different people being like, "Yeah, John's great. He he looks like a cult leader." Or, well, I mean, literally, since you cut the mullet, not as much, but feels David like Crash, baby. Yeah, it was David Crash vibes. Well, making money and like trying to figure out how to make money um, is such a huge part of this story. I mean, I think that's what's so, it's um, you know it's it's so difficult. I mean, I, I, I don't know how I, I have a friend who's a working dancer, which sounds like like she's like in like a That's jazz hard. dancer yeah. in New York. And the idea of being a working artist is such a um, like anachronistic concept in 2022. It just seems completely and totally impossible for so many people. It seems totally out of reach. And part of the story is so much of that struggle of you trying to figure out how to fucking continue making that possible while still allowing, it seems like this community that you've built and this like scene, but also the tension between, um, you know, kind of the misgivings of also having to run a business while maintaining that, like trying to kind of keep all this whole thing going while in the midst of this huge transformation of San Francisco. So like how, I mean, and that's a big part of the story, right? It, it, it goes under, <laughs> It, it's it's really hard. I mean, how I don't know. How did you kind of get that going? And at what point did it become clear that it maybe wasn't going to work out? Well, so I think there's a there's an interesting tension with me that I I definitely like want power for sure. I definitely wanted to be more famous for sure. Like anyone who says they don't, they're just like full of shit, you know. Um, but like I really truly am ambivalent about money. I, I just don't, it's just, I can't spark the neur, the neurons. I can't really get it. Like I can't get too activated. So the tension for me was always like, I wanted 
people to pay attention to my records. I wanted people to like, you know, honor the studio <laughs> as if it's like a mafia don. But <laughs> I, I really didn't care about money. So what would happen was that we'd get into these cycles where if like I would buy gear, like for instance, like, you know, PayPal has this like stupid, you can buy something for six months and you don't have to pay for it. So I would you know, my credit line would be like 20 grand. Yeah, so I yeah, would just yeah. buy crazy shit and I'd be like, I have six months. And then I would just like go on tour and forget about it. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Like, you know, and then I get an email that like you have an $18,000 payment. And, you know, I have an econ degree. I didn't go to a good school, but I have an econ degree. I paid attention. So I don't fucking pay interest. You know what I mean? Like, I'm a scammer. I don't pay my taxes. Classic econ degree mindset. (laughs) Yeah, and let's be clear. Usury is, I mean... It's gross. And to be clear, what what are taxes but usury (laughs) on the working man? (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to pay for an F-35. It's not going to happen. Well, I I will, but as long as I get to drive it, which is... (laughs) I'm going to be starting the lottery system. So I think that unconsciously in the beginning... I used this almost like over lever- constant over leveraging to motivate me to mm. like mm. pay for shit and yeah. to be engaged and like so then classic then, grind set grind total grind set and then but it gets worse because then I got addicted to the anxiety and then the only way to satiate this is to keep building studios so that's what happens <laughs> oh, yeah. like you know you are I just should have had oh, one room capitalist yeah and then all of a sudden I have three and it's like insane. Well, I think the crazy thing about, especially in, you know, in the music world, because I spent a long time of that was basically the only thing I did was, was play music, going to or playing bands and stuff like that. And the, a lot of the people you meet at recording studios and, but more than that, like show bookers or tour bookers, uh, most of the bands I've dealt with didn't have managers, but managers too, which I've some since dealt with you really got to be a ruthless son of a bitch who's willing to not only skim some off the top, but skim a lot off the top in order to make a profit. Because unless you're in like basically everything else, like unless you're in the major leagues, you know, you're playing in like the killers or something, you're generally not making very much money. And the people around you, um, I mean, a lot of the times, like, I mean, I probably paid more to recording studios than I ever actually made in a band um over the course of over a decade um and we weren't paying exorbitant rates or anything like that but it's like i remember paying a, we had to pay a guy like 200 dollars a day i was like this is the fucking kidding me this is the craziest thing i ever heard in my life um <laughs> i'm like 200 dollars a day <laughs> well, how, well, don't we who gives or gives us money um but uh you know that's that's the thing. It's like, and and that's something I really, I mean, listening to the to the to the to this show, um, because well, sneak peek audience is actually not a sneak peek. We got a sneak peek. Um, but uh, listening to the show, that seems to be one of the the major um, kind of problems that you come up against is that like you can't. And I'm not saying this. I'm not sucking your dick or nothing here. But like. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, I'm I'm in 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 agreement with Ben Gibbard here as as usual, you know, for our many conversations. Um you you are not great at running a business. Um but there is something addictive about this, it yeah. seems like, because I mean, at coming from, you know, almost nobody makes money playing music. Yeah. But people yeah. still do it. And uh yeah. 
And in a way, the recording process, I really always really enjoyed that. Um, I mean, yeah. I was never produced anything, but it is just like, it's an incredible sort of art form in its own right. And also think about this, that like the studio was solvent and profitable for 23 years. Now, it might not have, you know, I might have left some money on the table, but maybe that was like insurance, like in case like, you know, goodwill actually has yes. like real value. So like yeah. if I, you know, gotten to, you know, I didn't have health insurance for 14, 15 years. And I remember in the middle of that, I'd be like, you know what? I'm pretty sure I could fucking pop off on a GoFundMe. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure I could blow this up. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Well, when I was living and working in San Francisco, like, we called it, we, everyone just kind of, like, bartered with each other. Like, we called it Retail Mafia, and everyone had each other's back. And it yeah. would be like, oh, you know, where I worked, it'd be like, oh, we're going to just, you know give you this off of whatever. And when I see you later at the bar or at the restaurant, you're going to give me that off of whatever. And everyone kind of, you know, was back then. I mean, this was, you know, again, right before everything, everything changed. changed. Um, you know, it was still possible back then for that kind of community to exist. I don't know if that still exists, to be honest. But I mean, I pay. Yeah, I, I mean, I was living. I think I paid like two hundred fifty dollars for rent at one point. Yeah, that's gone. I mean, I think that maybe some of that, that like spirit exists mm. in Oakland. But but I think yeah, that yeah, like yeah. San Francisco proper, it's been it's been it's been uh, eradicated. Well, that's yeah. that's that's sort of what it's like from listening to this. I mean, I, I got to tell you, this was a big trip down sort of memory lane. Yeah, just totally. the milieu that a lot of this was in. <laughs> um, I mean. You know, Liz, your point about that, like sort of the retail mafia, I, uh, unfortunately no one was willing to trade flowers out on 19th Avenue in the sunset for anything. <laughs> but I do remember like when I was like 18, uh, and I, I mean, actually in for many years after that, I had no money. I would go down like either to the mission or to upper hate or something where like a large concentration of people I knew worked and be like, yeah. all right. Well, I can get a free slice, couple slices of pizza for free from Rincon at RNLs. <laughs> then I can go over and get drunk, uh, delirium for like two free drinks until the guy gets mad at me. It's like, well, you got to pay for the next one. Then I can go to a different bar and get. Drunk. It's like that. That worked out for a while, and that was like very. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of. It almost seems crazy looking at the city now, but like San Francisco really was like. I mean, th th this is this show. I mean, listening to this, it's it it shows just how much of like an incredible place San Francisco was. I mean, it used to be a center of like music. I mean, it, uh, yeah. unequivocally yeah. For decades. all different kinds of music. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that like what got me about San Francisco is that, I mean, I grew up kind of fearing for my own sanity and just wondering like, well, they say that the voices start when you're 22, you know, when you're like 21, mm -hmm. 22. And I was like, well, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was very sure that m my mental health was going to unravel very quickly. And when I got to San Francisco, I was 21. I think I got there a week after I got my econ degree from University of Maryland. And I rolled into this place and I was like, whoa, I'm absolutely not the most mentally ill person here. In fact, <laughs> no. <laughs> in fact, I feel pretty good about yeah. where I'm at. And like, there was something deeply comfortable about that. And it mm. was, you know, it's, hey, San Francisco, like, 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 St. Francis, like the, the, the history of San Francisco and Barbary Coast and, and, and like, 
free speech movement, Black Panthers, like the Bay Area is a fucking beast. You know, I mean, all that shit's almost feels like it's been for all of us has been completely wiped out by tech. I mean, the least fuckable thing in the world, mm-hmm. all these c- companies <laughs> coming into your town. You know what I mean? For like for now. <laughs> but like, yeah. Yeah. So we know. Uh, Young Chomsky, I have a question for you. Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah, hit me. What were challenges that you had to take this kind of anarchic, sprawling 23-year story and arc this into, you know, five hours? What a what a great question, John. Uh, I was just kind of thinking about that. Oh, well, I think, like I was alluding to earlier, a, a little peek behind the curtain again, this was a, a really interesting process for me. It was super fun, um, and it was kind of different from what I usually do. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think when I look back at that first email, right, that I sent you where we were just kicking this idea around, I think it was all kind of there, Um, which is really satisfying to be at the end of it and say, you know, this vision I had at the beginning, it kind of came to fruition. But yeah, like you alluded to, like, I think I recorded, so the finished product, this whole series is like five hours and change, right? I I think that I had close to 10 hours of audio from all these interviews. So that obviously involves making a lot of choices uh, for, for, for me making a lot of choices, right? Like this all, none of this would have happened if not for John's story being real and then John being so good at telling it along with all the other guests who spoke so eloquently and and truthfully and, and passionately and all that. But then I sit there and I've got to make choices about what story I'm trying to tell because I could have told a somewhat different story and there were things that I cut that um, were, were really difficult to cut because it's like, this is great. This is entertaining to me, but you have to be kind of ruthless uh, as an editor. Mm. So that was maybe, that was the biggest challenge, right? Like there's a lot of stuff that that's cut out of here that I think is like interesting material, but it's really trying to envision what is an arc? What, what is the, um, the form of, of this story that we're trying to sculpt out of this block of marble, so to speak. And, and it wasn't, as hard as it could have been because John and I spent a lot of time outlining and and really plotting things out before we recorded. But then, of course, you never know when you sit down with somebody. I'd never talked to uh, almost any of these people before other than John, who I interviewed. Uh, so you hope that somebody's going to give you something really compelling, but you don't know. Uh, but hopefully I asked them questions that led them to a place or I just find it later. You know, I go through the audio and I, even if it's just a minute out of a 15 minute conversation, you got to kind of be able to home in on the thing that really uh, ties in and, and then figure out where to place it later. So that was the fun part, but also uh, the challenging part, I think. Yeah, I think you did a really good job with that because this is like, you know, we, we sort of uh, mentioned this earlier, but this is very different than a regular True or Not episode where it's not just like some people sitting around talking because this is like an audio documentary basically with like John serving as kind of like the narrative voice and then all of these other interviews, some of them pretty long, buttressing that and like moving, I don't want to call it the plot, but essentially moving the storyline along here. Um I, I mean, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed listening to it. I, this is, uh, I, I, people, you gotta, you gotta be very real here. It fucking is hard to be an editor. Like cutting it's all really that shit hard. down yep. blows. Yep. Yeah, it's hard. And also what's funny to me is that like, like young Chomsky sent me episode two recently mm-hmm. just to listen to it, just to double check everything. And I was listening and all of a sudden I was kind of like a little bit out of my own body and my own ego. And I was like, whoa, this is 
really interesting. Like, <laughs> what's happening here? Like, I was completely caught up in a story that had been, in in some ways, upgraded by young young Chomsky, and and like given like kind of like rails, you know. And I was all in. I was like, I'm stoked for the. And I'm like, hey, dummy, this is you know what happened. This is your life. You <laughs> yeah. <idiot." laughs> well, I mean, is it weird? Is it weird to listen back to all of this and be like? Oh yeah, that's like I forgot about this. I think I'm used to that kind of like you know like tension, but yeah. I but there are there are things. I mean, I think that the first thing that I thought when I heard episode two was mm-hmm. like Young Chomsky's made me like more coherent for sure. Like there's something yeah, about he hearing does, he's you. He's good at that. He does right? that for us too. <laughs> right? Just like cleans you up. You know, you're like a like the ultimate dinner party version of yourself, you know? <laughs> like not buzzed, you know. Well, that's what uh what's what you do also in the studio, right? Like I, I told you, John, it, I, I was laughing kind of at myself because one of the big differences, apart from how I made it. Uh, versus a regular podcast episode was I've been working on this for a really long time and nobody's heard it. So that cycle is super long, right? Whereas typically if if you do a podcast pretty regularly, you move on to the next one pretty quickly or you get feedback on what you did a couple days ago. But like I've been working on this, like I mentioned earlier, for almost two years. So I've been treating this more like making a record than I usually treat making a podcast, right? I told you, I'm like sitting here listening to this on different sets of speakers. It's like, that's kind of what you do when you mix a record. Like you go and listen to it in your car and then you listen to it in your headphones and I'm making little tweaks, which feels a little insane because, you know, I have very high standards for our podcast audio and I want it to be great, but you fundamentally can't do that because you got to do the next episode pretty quickly. Uh, But yeah, so this was this process of of producing and editing. It felt more like working on an album, and I'm kind of playing that role that you would play for a band, maybe when you're in the studio. And and I think you say some things like this, where you're like, "the my role is just to bring out the band's kind of best self or or portray them in the best best light." So yeah, that's kind of how I I looked at it. And you mentioned oh fuck, <laughs> and. Young Chomsky, you mentioned that you have a photo of yourself in front of the studio. From what year was it? So I think my first time, because I lived, I moved to San Francisco in 2015. Mm. Uh, and so this was 2014. It I saw was, the photo and I was trying to place the haircut like, <laughs> and in, the, in the like chronology. It's yeah. crazy too, because I mean, you... You're totally naked in it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was that would be very mid two thousands mission, right? Yeah. Music yeah. indie rock. He's like on a unicycle. <laughs> yeah, where they're like, "Oh, my friend from Baltimore is staying here for <laughs> yeah. two weeks." Yeah. He drives a cab. I didn't know anything about San Francisco. I just, but I'd heard of this place, and I was into recording. And John, at that time, and this, this, we we get into this story at some point in the podcast. I forget which episode, but started giving tours of Tiny Telephone because it became not just a popular <laughs> the studio. Consummate cap- capitalist yeah. looking for t- ever actually, increasing. Trying no, the tours to find were free, right? Little profits. Actually, yeah, the tours were. But Liz, what's even in- crazier is that. Most of the tours I gave were strictly like tourists. They were not musicians. Like those were the tours <laughs> that excited me because those were the people that would like, instead of looking at some console and being like, is that an E5316? They'd be like, <laughs> like, oh my God, this thing that I love was done here. Oh, yeah. Super oh, connected and like thrilled and be like, hey, let's go get tacos after this. I'm like, sure. 
There, yes. I mean, I probably gave a hundred tours at least. There, there's the most fun. Wasn't that fun when I gave you a tour? Yeah, yeah, it was right. And and the thing that one of the things that's we do talk about a lot, but it's of course a little bit hard to get across on a podcast is just uh-huh. how this place looked and how it felt. And you know, a lot of people that I talked to uh, spoke very eloquently about this, but it had it just had vibe. You know, it it sounds corny, but it really did. I mean, we'll we'll share photos at some point um, on online or whatever, but it was just a very kind of homey place, a very handmade looking kind of place. It was not at all. Some studios are are pretty sterile. You know, I've been to different studios or like, you know, maybe they throw up a a rug and it's like, Oh, cool. But this place really felt, yeah. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it, but being there was really exciting for me as somebody who, who loved this music. And Yeah. yeah, that was my first time. It was 2014. I was in the city and that was what I was most excited that was probably the thing most associated in my mind with San Francisco. <laughs> I was like, oh, fuck, yeah. Tiny Telephone is here. I can't wait. And um, I don't know. I, I feel like I had a lot of questions to ask, but I was trying not mm-hmm. to ask too many questions and, and be annoying. Well, I think that's uh, what I always took away was that the that Tiny Telephone, because I never went there, but that the space felt like what it produced, that it had mm-hmm. this yeah. like yeah. physical fingerprint. That it yeah. felt like an analog space, and which sounds so stupid, but you know what I, you guys know no, what I mean. It, it, that it, it feels like sense. there's like a texture and a, like an imprint mm-hmm. that the, the like a physical imprint that the space itself would leave in a, in a way that like again, it just feels like that texture has like left our world. <laughs> Like, yes. Yeah. You know, I I I don't I haven't been to recording studios. I haven't been to anything like that like ever, but um I would imagine that now they have there's a lot that feel much more like co-working spaces than anything mm. close to what Tiny Telephone felt like. Well, John kind of um famously I think coined this term that you can see him talking about in different interviews a sloppy hi-fi right and Mm. to me that that was how he described his sound and maybe john you can expand on that a little bit but i think that is also how how tiny looked right sloppy hi-fi in that it was you had these great machines from classic uh you know all different eras at the kind of peak of analog technology right and everything was well maintained that's something that people talk about a lot which is not true of of every every studio Mm -hmm. a lot of places kind of uh, famously would would put up gear on their website and then you'd show up and it would be broken. And so Tiny had this real pride in maintaining the gear. But at the same time, it was this very kind of rough-hewn, cobbled-together vibe. So to me, that descriptor of sloppy hi-fi describes both the sounds coming out of the studio and what it looked and felt like being there. Yeah, I think that for me, there were like a couple tensions. Like one, bands, the bands that we love are so much more conservative than you think they are. In in a studio, this was like the first, like blew me away, like thing that I discovered from recording bands. Like even bands that I really consider to be radical, they're paranoid. They they don't want to get out whatever lane they're in, whatever mm. small yeah. little fan base they've crawled their way out of that fucking you know, like like uh that like hole. They they don't want to give it up, and they're really really worried about whatever you know um whatever stylistic, you know, things that, that they, they feel are necessary for, for that, to, to retain that. And so I wanted to create a space that like visually was more likely to make everyone like me showing up to San Francisco and realizing that I'm not the craziest person 
anymore in my own small little hometown here. Like, I don't have to worry. Like, that's what I wanted people to feel when they came to the studio. So the studio was almost like this, like, onslaught of, like, sensory stuff. You know, it was a mess. There was, it was so burned in and there was so much mm. memorabilia everywhere. I mean, there was like a letter from the DEA when they like, when I bought <laughs> some pills from India Pill Daddy One on the dark web and I got, <laughs> it got confiscated and I would just like tack up this like letter from the DEA to, to me. I see just, you've <laughs> dealt with India Pill Daddy One too. <laughs> Believe me, big part of my musical career. <laughs> I mean, the prices are just unbelievably low. Yeah, but so, look what it gets you. <laughs> and we'd have like postcards from bands, you know, that they sent us on tour to the studio. And like, but also there were like really cool paintings and um, there were rooms within rooms within rooms. It just had a real kind of like, like it had, it did have this like deep, dark vibe and I think that it did loosen up bands. And I think that that's one reason why bands just kept, they would just, we had a lot of bands that would just record every record in their catalog. They would just come back to the studio. Mm. And I, I think that it was like a place where everything was permissible. You know what I mean? Like we, we, like there were a lot of like strange keyboards and noisemakers and like the weirdest gear that you could get a hold of. And everything, even though it looked like anarchy, everything was clean because I'm a total neat freak. So there'd be like really good coffee from Ritual and free weed (laughs) and really good like loose leaf tea from Five Mountains and all this old shit that looks so cool, but everything worked and the floors were swept. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the typical like anarchic space, you know, like post-punk space where there's like cigarettes and, you know, I'm having a lot of memories flood back about very unswept spaces I recorded. Yes, of course. Well, I mean, those are the places that I recorded in too, Brace. Like, like those, that's what kind of like radicalized me. I was like, whoa, they've got it all wrong. They've got gear that's broken and like shit that's just dirty and feels bad to be in. This feels bad for me. But it also like, we do want to feel that it's a human breathing, you know, space, you know. I think that's kind of one of the most important things about making a, making a record. I gotta be real. It's like not, I think a lot of people think that it's the band goes in the studio, you spend a few days in there, you track it and then you're kind of done. But there's a lot that like, you see people's neuroses come out. You see people's like real hidden insanities come out. Um, and like the the actual space itself has like a big effect on it. I I've recorded full records before. Me and Rincon's old band did a record um, awesome. that was actually on on Real to Real in this basement uh, on on I think on out on in the dog patch, and it the, it just fucking sucked. Like it was just a <laughs> we had to scrap it. It was bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the vibes were bad. I felt weird. I mean, the guy recording was just about the coolest guy you could get. He was like a a Dutch uh meth like full-on speed freak like euro like insane guy mm. lived you in like a psychedelic warehouse but it was just like not us and then we recorded it with this like our buddy and it you know it also real to real sounded fantastic um at some yeah. other place in the fucking dog patch um it's 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 a real process like it is an actual like artistic process um to record a record and like the the scene and setting of that is really really fucking important um you can really make or break a record absolutely
real quick for you, uh, Young Chomsky, because mm-hmm. you were such a fan of Tiny Telephone mm-hmm. and all of this music. Did you like freak out talking to some of these people? <laughs> because I mean, you were because that's a, that I I feel like that's like a bit of an untold part of this story too. Was that like this music was really formative for your own like this music scene and and yeah. all of these records that were recorded at Tiny. It wasn't yeah. just that you were a big fan of this space and you'd been there and you had this attachment. It's like the music that came out of this space was incredibly formative to you as a person who now is recording for a living, which yeah. is like kind of a funny little cycle we have here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think and hope you can hear in my voice the way I talk about this, how passionate I am and, and, and exciting this was for me. Um, but yeah, I think I kept my cool talking to everybody. And <laughs> it it wasn't as hard as maybe I, I was nervous beforehand. But then when I sat down for these interviews, it was actually pretty easy. And the reason for that was because I wasn't asking them questions for my own benefit or like about yeah. my curiosity. It was about their history with John and with Tiny Telephone. And I've never talked to John Darnielle from the Mountain Goats before or uh, Meryl Garbus from Tune Yards. But when I would talk to them, it was so genuine. Like it was not hard to bring out um, a lot of warmth and, and fond recollections because I would ask them, you know, tell me, I, I started every interview kind of the same way. Uh, and it was kind of like a warm up question. I would be like, tell me when you first met John and what was that like? And you would just see them kind of light up and, and talk about it. And and I should insert here that I don't want to make it sound like this is totally a hagiography. Like w- everybody loves John. We all love John, but we did get into some dark stuff in this too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, we talked about like the 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 mental health struggles and and the pain. You know, it's not all happiness and rainbows, is what I'm trying to say. And and we do that to me was really fascinating as well to to hear from these people who to hear from John about his struggles and from people who were there uh, during those kind of difficult periods. Because obviously, there's this story doesn't I don't know everything ends right. Um, yeah. That's kind of maybe one of the the themes in this. And and I I feel like this is in some ways a story about death and, and mortality, right? It's like, we, we tell you right off the bat, this thing was beautiful and, and now it's gone. And what does that mean, right? So just like somebody's life, it's like, what's the point of doing anything when we know it's going to end? And um, I don't know, maybe I'm getting a little too in the philosophical weeds, but that was one of the things that was interesting to me to kind of explore in this story. But all that's to say that uh, it, it was easier than I thought because uh, people were were drawing on these experiences, and and everybody seemed to be, uh, fortunately, very uh, forthcoming, and and willing to talk, and had a lot of a lot of fond memories of this place. But for sure, um, it was a lot of fun for me as somebody who listened to these records like on repeat in my college dorm room, and now to be here, uh, you know, ten or fifteen years later getting to tell this story and kind of um, m- memorialize uh, or be a little part of, of the legacy of this, which is... Mm-hmm. Yeah, now you're part of this story. Yeah, a little bit. Well, and I should also point <laughs> out, I mean, you hear this uh, when you listen to it, but my voice is not really on this podcast. So if you're listening to this episode and thinking this guy's really annoying to listen to, don't worry, you might still enjoy Keep the Dream Alive <laughs> because I made that decision early on, just like aesthetically that it's... Uh, I, I interview these people, but it's not... Uh, a dialogue. It's it's more of a monologue. I, I cut myself out of it just because I, I like the aesthetic of that. So I introduce and 
outroduce, I guess, the, uh, every episode, but I'm not, you don't hear me uh, gushing to, to all these people. No, when it's more listening. like a, yeah, a, you know, audio collage or an oral history. Mm-hmm. For Liz, sure. We should, we should make him do that for like our regular episodes. Like we like. <laughs> but just your have- voice? No, 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 no. Oh. Like have 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 young Chomsky like interview people for like ten hours and then oh put yeah, it but then he just cuts it out. But and then yeah. insert our voices at the beginning. Be like, Afterwards. hey y'all, we worked super hard on this. <laughs> uh, it has been such. Oh, YC, yeah, baby doll. Uh, what is your what's your favorite record recorded at Tiny Telephone? I don't think I've ever heard you call me baby doll before. It's it's always Liz. Well, so. uh, maybe that's it's yeah. We you know people, they don't want to hear the kind of stuff I call you. Uh, hey <laughs> hey hunk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my favorite record recorded at Tiny Telephone. That's the. I mean, I could name a lot that I've spent a lot of time listening to, but I think like top of head easy answer for me is is pixel revolt by john vanderslice uh which we do talk about some boom uh, baby in the, such in a, the podcast such a fucking bullshit answer well, it's, <laughs> it's, fucking kiss no, it's just like venmo cash app right now just like Yo, Chauncey, line, edit this baby. part out edit this part out <laughs> uh i mean it's funny you know i've been thinking about this like it's just such a weird coincidence that all of the best music ever made came out during like the years that i was in college and was really interested in, That's in finding new music Wait, but I, I, do, I have this question because all this music and this isn't really about i mean I think this is maybe a coincidence a little bit with the timing of this project for you, but like all of this music is having, and this scene in particular is having like a big renaissance right now. Hell yeah. Well, it's about to have a bigger renaissance once this No, but I'm seri- I'm curious what you guys <laughs> think about that. Like, like late nineties, early two thousands, indie rock and emo is having like a huge kind of, I don't That's know, a true. lot, a lot of like younger people. Yeah, it is. It's a huge thing right now, Brace. And like indie sleaze is what people are saying. That's like the aesthetic. That's really. Kind of, oh yeah, yeah. It's I, like I the that. like um, Cobra Snake. Uh, that's like yeah. the visual. Um, Cobra uh, Snake's back. Yeah, Cobra just Snake's that, back. that vibe. Yeah, yeah. Corey Kennedy. That it's vibe, all vibe. Yeah, yes. but also, but I just mean like there seems to be a lot more like a kind of like yeah. Uh, I think that there was like a moment after a lot of this stuff happened, like the scene, mm-hmm. kind of this music scene, where a lot of people were kind of like. Okay, we're 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 not doing that anymore. Like maybe yeah. the the excesses of indie rock were far too <laughs> there were too much for us, and now we kind of want to like disavow it a little bit, and yes. just as like you know, I mean that happens with all sorts of um, every kind of, of like music. artistic and right. yeah musical movement or whatever, totally and scenes. But now there seems to be like a little bit of a reevaluation happening. I, I, from at least from my perspective, it seems like a lot of people are kind of like going back and being like, no, actually this stuff was really good. Yeah. And like the songwriting and the production and like the stuff that people were putting out in these years that maybe, you know, like it wasn't just like fodder for like the uh, like OC soundtrack mm-hmm. or whatever it was later in the 2000s. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, and, and one thing I want to insert here about John and I think this kind of goes to why this uh, makes a lot of sense for us to have done this. John was way ahead of the curve in terms of, I mean, so first of all, we mentioned one of his early bands was called MK Ultra. Um, True. And John on Pixel Revolt and then on, so these records were coming out in the early 2000s and John was writing and singing about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan 
and about essentially how Bush did 9-11 uh, on these records. And I didn't feel like, I'm sure there was stuff that I don't know about and didn't hear, but in my mind, like he was the only one doing that in an interesting way. I mean, I, so the post 9-11 music was like, you either had this kind of schlocky, kind of Bruce Springsteen, like Honor the Heroes or like country yeah, music yeah. or I don't Creed, know. Who, let's not forget. Yeah. But I don't know who else in the world of indie rock, like, it was like, didn't seem possible because either you had to be mm. ironically detached or you just didn't touch it. It was like a fear of being cringe or something. I don't know. I th- it's like there's this pendulum, right, between based and cringe and like indie rock kind of swan, you know, people thought of it as cringe maybe for a while and now it's swinging back. You're like, oh, indie rock is based again. Uh, but yeah, I, I just, I remember that being really drawn to that in on John's records, um, the way that he talked about and and I I wasn't really politicized in those years. I was kind of just oh this is a cool song. It's like we used one of John's songs in our 911 episodes because it was just a 100% perfect fit. Um and I always loved that song but like have gained a new appreciation for it. So I don't know uh, I'm sure John has some some other feelings on it. I'm pro 911. <laughs> <laughs> The that's, only that's man, the only say. man with the backbone <laughs> enough to say it. I want, I want to correct the record here, YC, uh, in that I was, I was the only person with the wherewithal to put out the dumbest pro-war hardcore record in 2004 <laughs> yeah. that any 14-year-old in America. I was way ahead of the curve of that, and it <laughs> definitely has not come back to haunt me in every single. Day of my life yeah. <laughs> <laughs> only like every three months or so people, yeah people just get <laughs> mad at it. It, it it doesn't help it's the only record i've ever been on that's on spotify <laughs> uh which should you need be to illegal. re-record that's it as brace. you should re-record it as braces version and just like change <laughs> john i had a question for you about indie rock in general actually in specific i have heard that stephen malkmus of the band pavement <laughs> has two sets of teeth like a shark i was told this <laughs> About 10 years ago, uh, I have since tried to make visual confirmation once myself at a party. Did in not Portland? work. Uh, in where? Portland? In Portland? No, it was in San Francisco. Oh. Um, oh. I tried to look in his mouth, um, <laughs> and it, I couldn't tell. Do, do, I don't know if you even know him. I assume you I, do. Does he have two sets of teeth like a shark? I toured with him for one month, and he doesn't. he has normal teeth. <laughs> But like, doesn't even have like. But did you look behind the normal teeth I, to I, make I, sure I, there weren't other? I grabbed teeth? his his mouth. I opened his jaw. I like <laughs> had a headlamp on. Like it, it's 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 good. Weird. Why did you hear that, Brace? Uh, I don't know. Someone told uh, two people. To, well, one person told me that, and then I think I told another person, and they they forgot I told them, and <laughs> they told me. There's your two people. <laughs> yeah, uh, it has to be. I it has to be Steve. <clears throat> I am. Yeah, it's it's yeah. He's got fucking two sets of teeth. Well, anyways, Stephen Malkus, if you're listening to this, I know your fucking secret, dog. You cannot <laughs> hide it from me. I will get inside those mandibles and I will extract those teeth and give them to science. Um, uh, there was um, motherfucker. I had another question too as a follow up to that. Now I can't fucking remember it. Yes, now I do. Fuck you, JV. Uh. I don't even know if you guys talk about this on the podcast. I don't believe you do. Uh, Maybe you do in a later episode. But uh, you at one point very clearly faked a letter to yourself from Microsoft. Yes. um, Telling you to not put out your record. 
Yeah. That is that, that, uh, I mean, I, I think you would obviously do the story a little more justice, but I think that, uh, when I read that, I was like, man, this is exactly the way to actually get publicity. Like this is yeah. what you should be doing. And it's a way to kind of get around things in a very scrappy way without a PR guy. But I would, I would, uh, I would appreciate if you'd let our listeners know that story. Well, I, uh, the last MK Ultra, no, actually it was the, it was the first MK Ultra record had a song called Bill Gates must die. And, uh, so I, Kind of like, you know, I was like as absolute zero. So I, I, I realized that if I didn't spark this shit up myself, like nothing was going to happen. So I wrote a letter, which I thought was like a very poorly constructed Photoshop job. It like doesn't look, I still have the letter and it doesn't look really that believable, but it's from like Microsoft letterhead. And it's like, a, like it's like what I imagined a cease and desist letter would say. Um, and I faxed it into the Chronicle and the Guardian you faxed and the SF Weekly, <laughs> right? And the, it went so far that it was on the cover of the arts section of the Sunday San Francisco Chronicle. No way. This With is the like, comics. We're, we're, Whoa, that's pretty big. Yeah. And it was got into the weekly multiple weeks, the Guardian wired magazine. Ooh. Sent. SF and that's when and, and that's when Wired was like cool. You know? Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. They sent someone to interview me. And at, at the third interview, when the story was kind of like, you know, it was probably in its like second or third week where you're just about to get busted. You yeah. Know? And I remember the third interview I did with this writer who was like a cut above the other writers. He was like, a t you know, he was a little bit more connected, a little bit more savvy. And he started asking questions where I was like, he knows I yeah. need to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and so, like, a couple days later, there was, they, you know, that's when news, I don't know if newspapers do this anymore. They maybe don't, but they had to all print retractions. Amazing. I got phone calls from writers, oh like, how dare you do this to me? And, like, <laughs> I thought it was, like, 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 deeply funny the whole time, you know. No wonder you're pro 9-11. You, yeah. Your man loves a false flag. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd think that one of them would like call up Microsoft and be like, hey, did it? Yeah, right? Like, like no one. And also it's like just if you back up from the story, like who gives a shit yeah, that totally. Microsoft sent a letter? It doesn't even mean anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, so like a nothing local musician wrote a, a song that, you know what I mean? Like the whole th yeah. thing was so funny that it got any steam. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, that was, it. it's just, it's kind of incredible because it's like music in San Francisco really kind of as, as like, as, as San Francisco rather as like a musical attraction, as like scenes coming out of it. That cycle really, I feel like ended seven, eight years ago. Like yeah. finally, yeah. like there was no new scene. I mean, I, I think kind of the last one. Besides that, like there was kind of that like that indie pop scene. Yeah, remember those compilations? I can't remember what they were called, but those like compilations like came out. But like we were talking about this when we were in LA with you. We were talking about like the kind of like waves of San Francisco and yeah. how, yeah, it was like that last wave with like girls, girls, basically. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and Absolutely. then and there was like a couple of those other guys that were kind of doing like it was like after the psych the psych. <laughs> like yeah. freak folk the thing exploded yeah. yes. and yeah. the psych rock explosion that like went for like whoop and then died and then they all went yeah. to Austin mm -hmm. and then 
there was the girls pop thing and like there was like a little bit of a surf moment, but then Ty yeah. moved to LA and the whole thing yep. died. And yep. now yeah. there's just been nothing and nothing since, right? Literally, yeah. yeah, Ty and John Dwyer moved to LA and then it just stopped. Yeah. yeah it stopped. I remember when John told me he was leaving and I was like, oh boy, this city's yeah. dead. I, I knew yeah. it was dead. But you know, it's wild. The girls thing ended in, in like a weird way because he basically started stealing stuff from recording studios and i just thought like damn Wait, what, what a what a gnarly end to this story you know yeah. and like that that would be that's a good pod cycle right there Oof. like the, the the life and death of that band would be fascinating yeah. might be a little too close to that story yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, to be able to cover it um i remember that record cover they did with all those girls on it and i was i was like what's up ladies <laughs> 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 i dated some of those women I was yeah. I'm. I was working that day. <laughs> Happy. We're, we're, we dodged a bullet with you not being on the girls' record cover, baby. Yeah. Yeah. I played a showcase at South by in. I think it was 2010. This is is just so funny to think back on. And the venue we played in was this church. I don't remember the name of it, but I feel like it's like the church in that yeah. part of town. And it was beautiful. And then the night before my band played. Um, the, the lineup was girls. I think it was kind of like, they were just breaking out. Uh, mm. it was girls, the, uh, grizzly bear and the rural sure. Alberta advantage. And <laughs> oh, man. The, the room was packed. There was tons of, of, of press and it was incredible. And the vibe was great. And those bands sounded amazing. And I was so excited. Cause I was like tomorrow night, fellas, you know, to my band <laughs> we're this is going to be us. This is what it's going to be This is like. us. <laughs> And uh, we came back and played the next night, and it was just, the room was still beautiful. The acoustics were different, given that it was yes. like almost completely empty. <laughs> um, I think that at the same time as our like you know quote unquote official showcase, which I thought like was going to mean something, it really didn't. I think like Kanye West was playing across town, or like Metallica mm-hmm. played. So that's what South by is. It's like when you're. I really was obviously naive at the time, but. I thought maybe, you know, it's it's your big break. You get in front of people, some yeah, label yeah. or something. And it was just, it was depressing. I mean, I got to get into a bunch of shows for free, which is like, you can, you choose, either they pay you like some kind of miserable amount of money, like $200, uh, or you can get a pass and just get into all the shows. And I was like, I, I guess I'll take the pass. So like Incredible I saw scam. all these bands. Yeah, but <laughs> we played- scam. I, I think I've told you these uh, this before. I um I had a, a free CD. I was giving out like my demo CD. It seems like what you do, and sitting at the table after the show, where I, the bill I actually played on was with Steve Burns. I couldn't think of his name recently. Uh, Steve from Blues Clues went on to to make some music with some of the guys from the Flaming Lips, and Wait, he made what? a cool. What? Yeah, he was super nice. I only met him really briefly, and his set was cool. But I played David Burns' uh, brother. Is it? No. No. Different. Uh, <laughs> Steve, Steve Burns, different um, different name. But anyway, I, I just remember giving this guy, giving out free CDs, and one guy took it, I guess, thinking that it was somebody else, and then threw it back at me. No. Like this thing that I'd given him for no. free, and just that moment stuck no. in my head. Like, how depressing no. to have somebody like toss your free CD back at you. I was God like, brother, just. Did he just, do it hard or did he kind of like underhand well, it? He wasn't trying to like injure me, but he threw it. <laughs> yeah. And I felt very disrespected. What's uh that actually brings me to a to a question I love asking. This is this is bringing me back to my damn rock journalist days. What's the worst show you've ever played, Young Chomsky? Oof. I mean, the, I went on tour. The last time I went on tour was uh, 10, 10 or more years ago. And 
I don't know if it's like one show that was bad. I mean, I, I, I do enjoy telling this story now and I won't get into the whole story. I'll give you the super condensed version. But basically on this tour, I spent a re- I worked really hard booking this tour. It was West Coast, up and down the coast. And uh, it was like 19 shows. I think three shows in, we went from a four-piece to a three-piece because our bass player quit. Okay. Uh, we ended up... Lo- our our, our um, car, so what, what? I forget the name of the part in the car. Something broke down in uh, Oregon, and we, we had to cancel two shows. And then the transmission died at the end. Mm. And so we had to basically limp back from... Uh, San Diego to Las Vegas to do our final show at Beauty Bar where we had a $100 guarantee. So it's like, we have to get to this fucking show because we're getting $100. And The fucking racketeering at Beauty Bar. Yeah. And (laughs) we we had to drive like 40 miles per hour. It was the movie Speed, but in reverse. Dude, Um, I had to do that. I had to do that on the very first tour I went from, from fucking Arizona to San Francisco. We had the same thing. We only could only go 40 miles an hour. Yeah, or like we thought the engine was going to explode. So we were just like... We had to go on all back roads. We could go on the highway and it took us 12 hours. And um, we finished oh, the this tour down a band member, down like multiple thousands of dollars. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess maybe if the most depressing show was honestly in Seattle, because it was the only place on that tour. We either knew somebody in every city who would like put us up, let us sleep on their floor, or we just charmed our way into someone's home, except in Seattle, which was the northernmost, coldest. It was October. And we had to sleep in our fucking van in Seattle, which, you know, I've lived a pretty uh, coddled life. I've never had to sleep in a van or on the street other than this. And it was like, it was bad. It was very cold out. You were all sweaty after the show. You just want to take a shower. And then to sleep in a van and then have to do it again the next day was like a real morale killer. But I don't know. John has has probably had similar stories. I was going to say that the good chunk of the series focuses on the kind of toll that that touring took like on your life and and like you know your decision to stop touring i mean i'm you know there's a couple stories that you talk about in in the show but i'm sure you have like plenty more like horror stories of being on the road but it certainly like changed a lot of the trajectory of your life and keeping that up as a musician is just uh, it's really really tough i think that you know touring is like is is a very extreme it's like an extreme way to express yourself. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. it, it can, it can dominate so much of the flow of your relationships and your life. And mm-hmm. I think that it's very common for, you know, they, they call it when you get back from tour, like getting off a moving sidewalk that it's like, you know, it's like, it's a little, it's a little difficult to have like a normal social life a normal romantic life when you're off of tour like you're just a little bit weirder you're a little bit more um like fragmented and you are also like you get used to the kind of compressed imagery of being in a van or a bus you get used to this like you know i mean think about this if you're touring in the east coast it could be like a tuesday and you're playing in dc and then by that Friday, you know, you've gone through like like Baltimore, Philly, you know, t- two Manhattan shows. And then by maybe Sunday, maybe you're playing like Swarthmore and you're in, you know, instead of being in the middle of Manhattan, you're in a field in a private school where you're like cashing a check, but you're like playing to 30 people in like an o- old stone building. And then... 
The next day you're in Columbus. And so just this seven days of just intense, you're seeing some of your best friends. You're maybe seeing the crush of your life in one of these cities where you're just like, oh, this is the person that I want to like be with. And then you're receiving disappointing or stressful phone calls from your family, right? Mm -hmm. And you're having like, like deep financial problems that, you know, pings that are coming through you to your phone or through emails that you can't handle or deal with or, or solve. And you've just gone through a week of extreme emotional intensity. And you're supposed to just like come home, shut your door. And then you're in this like apartment that's dead quiet and there's no clapping do you know what I mean? There's there's no like hurry up and go. There's no like um, eight hour drives. And then, I mean, there's moments where you're like literally peeled out of a van at like, you know, 10, 15. And you're like, there's no way I can play a show right now. I yeah. just, I cannot do it. Like Bryce, you've been there. Like Young Chomsky, you've been there. And then you're just like, all of a sudden you're like st standing out in front of people and you're playing a fucking show because that's just what you're what you're going to do and all of that is fine but a decade of that you it has changed your brain chemistry and i would argue strongly that you are not a better person after a decade of that and that's that's what happened to me yeah that was that was that was a part of the show that i really like it was it, that that hit a lot of notes for me because i mean it it really it can change the dynamic between a pe group of people who are really close knit together and like yeah. a real unit maybe when you're at home you spend some months on the road with people no matter how good you are as friends it really tests a lot of stuff both for you like i don't know mentally and personally but like also socially with these people um i mean it, imagine if you're just with your coworkers 24/7 but you're also making this art together and you yeah. also sort of have to like, I mean, even just the very nature of a band, you're all basically contributing this one part to the whole and the whole has to be basically, you want it to be as perfect as possible. And so any mistake there has these reverberations that, that get onto everybody else too. Um, it can be really difficult and it is like really hard also to keep like a, a love life at home. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, you know, that that's as, as I'm sure any person who's toured as a musician, uh, is, is probably familiar with. Um, yeah, and it's hard to keep your head on straight. I, I have no, of course, I, of course you wouldn't quit doing, I mean, though you still yeah. tour. I still tour now. I mean, I stopped for four years and then when my mom died, I kind of like lost my mind and like the only way back from it was to start touring again. Yeah. I mean, part of that was it connected me back to my mom and part of it was that I realized that some of tour, some touring, you know, like two months a year is incredibly healthy. But I think that when you almost won't even have friendships at home because you're basically just like have a suitcase in the corner that you're ready to, you know, you're just always, I remember I would get back from tour and I would kind of just be packing for the next tour. So I wouldn't even bother calling anyone because I'm here for nine days. Why would I even make plans, you know? And you, you become very, you guard these moments of, uh, being back from tour because you need to start writing. So you're in this like ridiculous grind that is so, first off, you're not even making that much money from it. You're barely surviving financially, but yet your whole life is warped. And like, I never 
I never drank on tour, but like the number of like comrades that just get like like taken out from alcohol mm-hmm. and drugs. It is fucking crazy how many of my friends got like taken down by this stuff. I mean, that's that's what happens on tour. That's how people eventually end up dealing with this stuff. Well, also it is like basically the one way you can really make any money as a musician, even if it's not a lot, is is touring. I think a lot of people Yeah. Yep. That's, that's like, the only you way don't make any money. money from like even before Spotify. Like you don't make money yeah. from record yeah. sales unless you're selling a million records, you know. Yep. Hundred percent. So having listened to this with the executive privilege that I do have, I'm very excited for other people to hear it. Um, and I just wanted to hear you guys kind of like last thoughts before we close this bitch down and uh, and then get them ready for the actual show to come out. Yeah, this this was hella fun, first of all, to, to talk about it. Like I said, obviously, um, I'm really excited about this, this podcast and I'm really stoked to finally have people hear it. But a couple things that that I didn't get to yet that have been in my mind is uh, about this podcast. Like one is um, this idea that I used to think about with songwriting, I guess, and when I used to kind of be a little bit more of a songwriter myself. Um, the idea that there is universality in the specific. Um, maybe that makes sense to some of you. I, I think these bands that some of these bands that we talk about are really great exemplars of that. Like, like John's songwriting or, or the mountain goat songwriting are these kind of really uh, vividly sketched tales of these interesting characters. Um, and I think as a listener, it's not that you have done these things that the characters in the songs have done, or you are exactly that person. You're not seeing yourself represented in these songs, but the, the texture, the emotional texture of the song uh, or, or the story is what resonates with you. And that's what I hope that people get from this podcast is that it's not about, oh, I'm also a musician and so I know what it's like to be on tour, but it's more about the struggle of how to make a living doing something that you believe in. And it's about you know how to leave a legacy and what that means. So that's that's how I hope uh, people will hear it. And, and the other thing too that I was thinking about is that this is a very anti-cynical or, or, or non-cynical podcast. Um, and I think that that comes across, I, I think, in the name of, of the podcast, Keep the Dream Alive. Like, it's right there, right? This is about chasing your dreams. And, you know, there's always, um, everybody's always afraid of maybe being too earnest. Like, it's going to be, it's going to be cringe. Somebody's going to call you cringe or whatever. Yeah. Uh, especially on the internet, right? That that there's a whole culture of, of that. Like, always be detached, always be ironic, um, I mean, I would hope people that listen to True and On know that, that I think we have a core of uh, of, of heart and emotion and, and non-cynicism, but we like to be funny in this podcast too. There's a lot of deeply funny moments, but really at its core, um, this is a really, um, it's, it's anti-cynical. It's an earnest podcast about what it means to believe in something and try to make it a reality. Uh, so, you know, it, it's not going to be for everyone. I think, but um, yeah, I hope that that we've achieved some of that universality through through these specific details. That was very well said. <laughs> oh, I'm not letting you get away with that, <laughs> JB. <laughs> um, 
I would do 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 do. Do y'all have a question for me, or oh, do you want me you to give mother? You motherfucker! <laughs> I asked you. I asked you for fucking closing thought. But let me build off of what 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 YSC just said there. Um, because I will say, you know, uh, you know, you are one of the at least on the surface least cynical people that I know. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I think that this show does a really good job of getting that across, but, um, I mean, is that how you, is that how you feel? Like, is that how you sort of see yourself? Um, I don't know if that question makes a lot of sense, but like, uh, I, you know, I, I understand that, you know, obviously people perceive other people, not necessarily how they perceive themselves. Um, so I just kind of want to throw that to you no. is, is how do you see yourself and all that? That, that makes total sense to me. I mean, I, I really, um. I don't feel any different. Okay, so when I so I I, I mentioned that I I saw an, an an ad in the SF Chronicle that was mm-hmm. placed by Marilyn Good, who is still alive and still like deeply important to me. She's almost ninety, and I reluctantly got her to meet me. She said that the space was already rented. This you know two thousand square foot warehouse. She showed up and I, she told me, listen, I'll show you the space, but it's already rented. And I just wanted to like do you the courtesy of like actually saying to this to your face. So I said, what, what did they rent it for? And she said, they're going to park classic cars here. And so I basically just told her that I wanted to like make art in this space and that I wanted to create a space for other people to make art safely and considerately and and like um you know with with like love you know and then she was like yeah yeah okay i mean she was cool but she was kind of like we're good why why would i put a bunch of like young ruffians in this (laughs) space when i could just have some chump park a car and then we can just lock the, the the door you know so then i wrote her a letter i sent her music i worked on her for like a month and then she rented it to me she must have backed out you know she probably backed out of this other you know lease or whatever with this person and i think back to that person i am definitely the same exact person that that i was then i meant it you know i wasn't like trying to just like control this like dupe you know what mm-hmm. i mean like she was a cynical strong and highly leveraged person like she did not need me in her life you know and I meant it. And I when I look back on the whole story, the arc of Tiny Telephone and the bruises and getting and the winds and the fucking L's, like I I'm this I'm totally like totally happy with what happened. You know what I mean? Like like it didn't it didn't show me how dark the world is or how difficult it is to deal with other humans or landlords or whatever. Like I, I feel more, um, gentle about the whole planet than I did when I was like, whatever, 23, you know, I, like, I don't feel, I feel like that everything I set out to do was true, that you can actually, you know, create an environment that is like, that is, like a safe, lovely, and creative space for other people to make art, and that that art will be better because of of your like t- tenderness. I believe all that. 
Oh my God, John, you're going to make me cry. Aw. Mm. No, well, now people are going to like listen to this fucking miniseries and I'll be like, this guy's like charming. He's got like a sonorous <laughs> voice. And what, what if they don't? We can't put this thing out. Just AI me saying like pro Trump shit. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Good, oh, right? we don't It'll need AI for that. Ass. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> are you kidding me? Do you remember what you told me the other night? Yeah, we have that all. Uh, we're, we record everyone at all times. <laughs> Epstein style. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. said they should just close the border unless people are racist. Yeah. <laughs> well, all right. Keep the dream alive. Actually, you know what? Fuck it. Why am I giving the Young Chomsky? You give him the damn. Yes. Tell you tell him the details. Yeah. yeah so uh, we we dropped a video trailer online um, that was was fun. Uh, was some kind of behind the scenes studio footage. Although to be clear, some people seem confused. This is a podcast series that we're doing. It's not that people maybe thought it was a film. Uh, we it was we made a fun video trailer. So if you haven't seen that, go check it out. Um, it's got some cool stuff in it. But yeah, the podcast will be dropping um, next week on February 2nd, 2-2-22, which is a fun date. And it's going to be on the Trunon feed. And uh, we're also going to be doing our regular Trunon episodes, but this is kind of its own series. So um, the first two episodes are going to come out next week. And then for the next next few weeks, we'll have weekly episodes. So uh, I'm excited for people to hear it and um, can't wait to see what you all think. Well, with that being said, my name is... Uh... Well, y'all might have heard of me. You know, I've been in this industry for quite a long time. I was, uh, I was with Gene Autry, and then I was with, uh, you know, God, I haven't Gene. heard that name in so. Well, <laughs> me either. I mean, <laughs> stories I could tell you about that man. Uh, and then, uh, of course, I was with uh, Moses Carfinkel up in Vegas for a while, oh doing uh, well doing some cocaine selling and now i just work down here at uh at la and i and i and i record uh i record mostly young men with curly hair on the top but not a lot of hair on the sides wearing large wide hoodies uh play what appears to me to be ethnic music although they themselves appear to be possibly of uh mixed uh anglo heritage um and that's mostly what I do. My name is um, uh, Michael Stand, uh, aka Brace Belden. <laughs> Mike Stand. <laughs> and uh, I'm joined here by. Well, what are your names? My name is John Vanderslice. And the music in this episode uh, was also by John Vanderslice. And I'm Young Chomsky. Thanks for uh, having me. I'll see you next episode. And I'm Liz. And this has been Trunon. And we will see you next time. <laughs> bye bye. <Bye-bye. laughs>